Welcome to the River Fellowship Podcast. At River Fellowship, we desire to experience God, exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage the world. This week, Lead Pastor Daryl Anderson continues the series titled Real with Part 8, Real Temptation. We have all heard good news, bad news scenarios. When it comes to temptation, 1 Corinthians 10.13 presents a bad news, good news, and great news scenario. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. We're almost to the end of our series now, entitled Real. Next week we'll end it, um, and it'll tie in a little bit with what we're talking about uh, this morning. But this morning I want to deal with real temptation. Now, this is a... I'm sure you guys have heard this good news, bad news scenario. You know, somebody comes up and says, hey, I've got good news and bad news. I'm sure you've heard the one about the two older guys that uh, have been golfing partners for decades. And they made a pact that whoever dies first, uh, they're gonna come back and they're gonna tell the other one if there's golf in heaven. Well, as fate would have it, a few weeks later, uh, one of the gentlemen passed away. And so true to his word, he came back to his other friend. And so his friend said, hey, Okay, is there a golf in heaven? And the friend that had passed away said, well, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is there is golf in heaven. The bad news is you have a nine o'clock tea time in the morning. <laughs> I actually saw, which I thought was interesting, a webpage that said good news, bad news jokes for pastors. I didn't know if there was such a thing. One was pretty funny. Uh, it said uh, some church officials approached the pastor and said, uh, pastor, we've got some good news and some bad news for you. The good news is the congregation wants to pay an all-expense-paid vacation to Florida for you and your family. He said, wow, man, that's great. What's the bad news? He said, well, we're just buying a one-way ticket. <laughs> some of you may get that here in a minute. Today, I've got some good news and some bad news. The point of the message kind of has both some good news and some bad news. The key verse is verse 13 here in 1 Corinthians 10. It says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Let's look at the bad news first. The bad news is you will face temptation. Now, this word temptation has a variety of, of contexts. It can mean a trial, it can mean a test, it can mean a tribulation, or it can mean a temptation. It's based on the context. I think the best interpretation here is the word temptation because the context around it is dealing with sin. So we're dealing here with temptation. In other words, that struggle, that pull that causes us to, to do something that's against God's plan and God's will and God's desire and God's word that, that leads us into sin. And there's two truths about temptation. The first is that temptation is real. If it weren't real, Paul wouldn't be talking about it in the scripture. We also know that we have an enemy, Satan, who it says is like a thief who only wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He's also like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We also have our flesh, and our flesh is unregenerate. 
So this flesh, this old sinful nature, even as a believer, keeps wanting to, to resurrect itself. So we're fighting against that at the same time. We also have the world system, and we know the world system is against God's system. And Paul reminds the Corinthians in chapter 6 that you guys were part of the world system. You've been called out of that, but, but you, you were once like that. So we know there's still the pull of the world. So temptation is real. But secondly, temptation is universal. That's what verse 13 tells us. It's common to man. In other words, you're not unique and you're not alone in facing and fighting temptation. We're all in this battle together and we're all facing real temptation. All of us struggle with succumbing to our flesh and submitting to the temptation of Satan. None of us are immune from the temptation. We're never exempt. We're not ever going to be exempt from temptation. This verse in verse 13 is dealing with temptation. But to understand temptation, we have to talk about sin because temptation makes absolutely no sense outside of the context of sin. Now, sin is a very difficult subject to talk about. In fact, it's so difficult to talk about for a lot of people, a lot of people won't even talk about it. They won't deal with it. Nobody likes to talk about sin, including me. <laughs> I'd much rather talk about resurrection we talked about last week. I'd much rather jump forward to next week. But there's, I think, some truth in here that we need to hear this morning. So it's some bad news. It's some hard news, but it's some news that we need to, to hear. I ran across some surveys and some, uh, some research back through the years that dealt with America's perspective and thoughts on sin. There was a, um, a research uh, article in 2008 that said 87% of the people still believe in the concept of sin, but the, quote, acts of sin are decreasing. In other words, what they're saying is we believe in the concept of sin, but we're shrinking the list. So what is considered sin is just keeps shrinking and shrinking and there are fewer things that are actually sin. There was a USA Today article in 08 that said that, that people do understand the concept of sin, but there's a growing number of people that just don't think it exists. In other words, conceptually they understand it, but they just think it's, it's not real anymore. In 2017, a, a study was released that said one third of the people that were surveyed either didn't believe in sin were, didn't think they sinned or thought sin was fine, it was no big deal. In other words, they, they believe, that percentage believe that either sin doesn't exist or there's no real consequence to sin. It's not, it's not a real thing. In, interesting, Barney did a survey in 09 and he just surveyed Christians. That's all, just Christians. Those who profess to be a Christian. What was interesting though, there was another tag that said he also interviewed those who were born again Christians, which I thought was kind of funny because if you're not born again, you're not a Christian. <laughs> there aren't any unborn again Christians. Anyway, he's just, that's free. There was just this survey, just Christians. 60% of the people surveyed said or suggested that the, the devil is not a real entity. He's just a symbol. And 60% of the people surveyed said or suggested that the Holy Spirit is not a real entity, rather just a symbol. What this tells us is that America's view on sin is continually to change. In many circles, uh, there are those who are just trying to dismiss sin altogether. There are others that are trying to, 
to devalue the, the consequences of sin. In other words, they want to live in certain behaviors and certain styles and act like it's not sin and try to do away with the consequences of those sins some way. But here's the problem, and here's kind of the hard word. We can't remove the consequences of sin. Denying sin exists or denying that sin has consequences, it doesn't change the fact of what sin is. Not talking about sin doesn't change the fact of what sin is and what sin does. Now, before we can really look at verse 13 and talk about this temptation, we have to be reminded of a few things about sin. So let me just remind you of just a couple of things about sin. The first is that the, the general word in Scripture, the most common word, is the word sin. And that word sin simply means to miss the mark. It means to fall short. It means, uh, as Romans 3.23 says it the best, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It tells us two things. One, all have sinned. It's universal. We're all in the same boat. But we fall short. Here's what that means. If I can give you a word picture, I'm going to try to hit Clay back there in the sound booth. Okay? You ready? Oh, can't make it. Okay, it doesn't matter how hard I throw. I'm not going to get there. Let me throw my arm out, but I'm not going to get there. Why? Because I don't have the arm strength to get it there. That little ball doesn't have the weight to get there. There's, there's, there's not anything I can do to make the distance. It's going to fall short no matter how hard I try to throw it. That's the concept of sin. In and of ourselves, because of original sin, now all of us are born in sin, and none of us have the weight, none of us have the ability, none of us have the strength, none of us have the goodness within ourselves to reach what God's expectation and standard is, which is perfection. Every one of us will fall short of that. That's what sin reminds us of. That's why grace is so wonderful. But there's another word that relates specifically to what we're talking about here, and that's the word transgress or transgression. And that literally means to step beyond or to step over, to go beyond. So if I've got a line right here, and that line is the line that God says, this is the limit. Whatever the issue is, you can't go beyond this limit. A transgress means whether by accident or on purpose, I just step over that line doing what I want to do. That's called transgression. That's what we'll see here in just a moment as we walk through this passage. But also with sin, there are basically three dynamics to sin. It's what a lot of people will call the, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. But it just so happens what's so good about salvation in Christ is salvation deals with every one of those aspects of sin. There are also three aspects of salvation. One is what they call justification. And justification frees us from the penalty of sin. Immediately when we receive Jesus Christ, that's what grace is all about. When we receive Jesus Christ, he covers our sin. Our sin is covered by the blood of Christ. It's removed. And the penalty, our debt for our sin is, is, is erased. It's removed. Then some scholars call it the second one sanctification, which is what we're doing today, working out our salvation, trying to be free from this constant power of sin as the temptation continues to, 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 to come our way. The third is glorification, which is one day we'll be free from the presence of sin altogether. This passage that we're looking at is dealing with this middle dynamic of 
sanctification. In other words, the, the, having the power over sin. It's not talking about justification because temptation doesn't apply to justification or glorification. It's just what we're doing right now. So what Paul does in this context of sin, he, he prefaces this, this, this verse 13 by talking to us about the Israelites and what their sin did as an example. So we see here in verse five, as they're in the wilderness experience, as they're in the Exodus experience, the sin that was part of the Israelites, he uses as an example. So he says in verse five about the Israelites, God was not pleased with most of them. That word pleased means to be delighted in or to think the best of. In other words, what they were doing did not delight God. God did not think that was what was best for them. So he wasn't pleased. Why was God not pleased? He tells us in verse six, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. They set their hearts on evil things. Now this phrase, set your hearts, literally means to crave, to long for, to desire, to be eager for. The evil things, it's, it's generally sin, more accurately, a perversion of God's goodness and God's plan and purpose. So what he's saying here is the Israelites craved and longed for and were eager not for the things of God, rather for the things that Satan had perverted. So here's the point that he's trying to make. The Israelites set their hearts on sin. Now, some of you may remember back when we first started the series, the first couple of weeks, I said there were three aspects, three characteristics that made up the fabric of Corinth. And they were sin areas in Corinth. They were promiscuity, pride, and polytheism that they struggled with. Well, it just so happens that Paul addresses every one of these as he's talking about the Israelites because the Israelites struggled with the exact same three things. In verse 7, it says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. He's dealing with a polytheism or a perversion of worship. He says in verse 8, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. Now he's dealing with promiscuity or the perversion of human sexuality. In verse 9, we should not test the Lord as some of them did. Here the root of that is pride. So he's talking about pride or the perversion of our sense of self-worth. Now, it's interesting to note back in verse 5, God says, I'm not pleased with them. Because God was not pleased with them, they did not experience the blessing of God and the favor of God. That's what that means. Because the Israelites set their hearts on evil, they didn't get to participate in the blessing and the favor of God of walking in to the promised land. He's saying that this is a reminder. This is an example to you. Now, obviously, those who have never received Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are missing out on the blessing and favor that God offers through salvation, through grace, eternal life. But even as believers, when we set our heart on evil things, we begin to miss out on the life and the blessing and the favor that God has for us because we begin to quench the Holy Spirit in our life and in our spirit and it begins to restrict and remove the blessing and favor that God has on us. So Paul here is saying, don't do what they did and don't set your hearts on evil things. Why does he say that? 
Why does he say don't set your heart on sin? I think it's because he understands sin. And here's the deal about sin. Sin is real, sin is bad, and sin is costly. Three truths to remember. And it doesn't matter if we don't believe it. It doesn't matter if we try to get rid of that truth. It does not change the reality, the spiritual reality that sin is real and sin is bad and sin is costly. There's a saying that many people quote that says this about sin. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Now, this is the bad news. Paul uses all this framework with bad news about temptation and sin and the realness of that and the power of that and the consequences of that. But it's a framework to get us to the good news. So here's the good news. The good news is still in verse 13, and that is God is faithful. Verse 13 again, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. Faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. When you are tempted, he'll provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So what does it mean that God is faithful? Well, it means a lot of things in Scripture. But specifically to this context, specifically to the context of temptation, when we're facing temptation, what does it mean that God is faithful? It means three things. The first thing it means is that you have a supernatural power source. God is faithful. When you're facing temptation, God is this supernatural power force that gives you the ability to withstand it. And we're talking about this God who took nothing, who had nothing, and created everything that is. This is the God that would breathe into dead men's bones and bring them to life. This is the God that takes a dead person and resurrects them. Okay, this is the God who has this supernatural power power source. So what that means when it comes to temptation, when I'm facing the temptation and about to yield, I have a supernatural power source that will help me stand up underneath it. But number two, it also means that we have a current and immediate responder. A current and immediate responder. God is faithful. It's not God can be faithful. God might be faithful, God wants to be faithful, or God has been faithful, or God could be faithful, or he was faithful. God is faithful, which means right now in your current temptation, he's right there in the midst of it, in the midst of your greatest struggle when you're about to yield to that thing that grips you he is current right there with you immediately to offer the supernatural power. The third dynamic is we have an unwavering presence. God is faithful. By definition, that's unwavering. He's reliable, He is trustworthy. He's here, he's there, he's present. He always comes through. He's always true to his word. There'll never be an occasion when we face a temptation that he won't be present and his power available to us. That's the good news. But to me, here's the big question. 
how do I apply God's faithfulness to my temptation? Okay, if I know, here's the bad news, I'm tempted all the time to sin. Here's the good news, God is faithful. How do I apply that faithfulness really into my temptation to where I'm able to yield and stand? Let me give you two ways. In a nutshell, we do our part, God does his part, and they connect together. But there are two aspects to us doing our part that avails God's faithfulness. Here's the first one. Set your heart on God's face. Set your heart on God's face. Back there in verse 6, when it's talking about the Israelites, it said they set their hearts on evil things. What that tells me is that setting your heart is a directional issue. And I've used this illustration several times, but I think it's so appropriate all the time. To say this way, I have evil things, I have sin, the world, all that temptation stuff. This way I've got God, I've got his face and his power and his presence and his goodness. Setting my heart means I'm gonna set a direction. I'm either going to set my heart toward evil things and begin to pursue those evil things and sin, or I'm going to set my heart on God and on his face and begin to pursue that because the reality is whatever I set my heart on, that's what I'm going to pursue. And the bottom line of what I pursue is attraction. It's all about what attracts me. I'm going to pursue what is attractive to me. I'm not going to tell this story again because I've told it before, but when I first saw Denise, who's my wife now, back in college, I had a frat event, and she comes walking in, unfortunately, with another guy, but she walks in through the door, and I just remember I'd never had this, this kind of thought in my head with, with other dates. There was just an automatic attraction and appeal. Who is that girl? I had to find out, and it led to, to trying to build a relationship. There was an attraction that led to a pursuit and that's what this is talking about, setting our hearts. It's all about attraction. Here's what that means. Temptation is only tempting because sin is attractive. Think about that. I'm only tempted to sin because sin is attractive to me. If sin's not attractive, I'm not tempted. It's all based on attraction. So the more attracted I am to sin, then the more willing I am to yield to the temptation because I'm attracted to the sin. And so that's what I'm pursuing on. That's what happened to Eve. Said that fruit was pleasing to the, for food, pleasing to the eye. That's what happened to David with Bathsheba. It was he was attracted, so he pursued. That's what the whole dynamic is. So here's the point. If, we are, if, if we're not attracted to sin, we won't be as tempted to sin. So here's the idea of what I'm trying to say. The idea of setting your heart on God's face is to be more attracted to God than to sin. To be more attractive and more desirous of fellowship with Jesus and intimacy with Jesus and experiencing life that Jesus offers, that's more appealing, that's more attractive than what the world has to offer 
or the perversion that Satan offers. It's really like having the heart of David. It says about David in Psalm 27, 4, one thing I ask, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He basically says, if I had, if I had one thing I can do, that one thing is to gaze on the face of God because he's so beautiful. He says in Psalm 42.1, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. My soul thirsts for God. Another passage, he goes on and says, when can I go and meet with him? In other words, he was so passionate and so attracted to God and the goodness of God that he longs and can't wait to be in his presence and have fellowship. That's what we're talking about right here. If we're gonna connect God's faithfulness and his power into my temptation, the first thing I've gotta do is set my heart on his face, be attracted to him, pursue him, and allow that temptation to become weaker and weaker and less attractive. But here's the second thing we do on top of that. That's to set your feet on God's faithfulness. Set your feet on his faithfulness. What did it say in verse 13? It says, God is faithful and he will provide a way out. He will enable you to stand. So it's a determination Part of it's our determination. Part of it is, is this supernatural ability that God comes along and gives us that strength. But it's a determination to set my feet knowing that God is faithful and I'm determined to stand against that temptation. I know all of you are probably familiar with the queen's foot guard. That's what they're called. It's not talking about the queen's feet, okay? But it's called the queen's foot guard. Guard. These are the, the soldiers that stand, you know, in front of the palace, in front of, of the gate, in, at the entrance. We've all seen it. This, you know, their, their big uh, bearskin hat, the red coats, the black pants. They stand very, you know, stoic and serious, and they don't move. They don't do anything. You know what I'm talking about? What's interesting is I kind of did some research on them. Um, they, they actually are not allowed to do certain things. Even if they're tempted to do it, they are not allowed to do those things. For example, they are not allowed to smile. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter what they're thinking, if they think of something funny. It doesn't matter if they see something funny, if something's going on, where they're looking at this. They are not allowed to smile. They'll actually be docked pay if they smile. They can't leave their post. It doesn't matter what kind of accident or what thing's going on. They cannot leave their post. They can't move. <laughs> they, they have to stand perfectly still. They can't remove their hat. They said their hat weighs anywhere from four to nine pounds. I guess it depends on how big you are and how big your hat is. But when it gets wet, it's like double. So can you imagine a, a hat on your head weighs 10 or 15 pounds? They can't take it off. So I'm just asking myself, how are they able and so determined to stand in the midst of that and not yield to some of these temptations? I think it's because they know who they are, they know who they represent, and they know what their purpose is. They know who they are. They're a soldier. They know who they represent, the queen. They know what their purpose is. It's to guard and to protect. I think the same thing probably applies to us as followers of Christ. What can help us not yield to those temptations when Satan and our flesh and the world call us into living a life that's against what God has ordained? Know who you are. You're a child of the king. 
Know who you represent, the one true God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And know what your purpose is. And your purpose, number one, we learned way back in 1.9, is to fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's number one. And number two is to be used by God to go out in the world, whatever he's called you to do. The great commandment says it this way, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's your purpose. That's our purpose, and that helps us. And here's the really good news. When we set our hearts on his face, we set our feet on his faithfulness, God is there. And verse 13 tells us he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That word provide means to take action. It means to perform. In other words, when we do that, what it's saying is God is going to do his thing. <laughs> when, we set our, when we set our heart on God's face and we're pursuing him and what is attractive to us is him. And we set our feet to say, God, because you're faithful, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to change direction. I'm not going to begin to pursue that. At that moment, God does what he does, and he performs. He acts. We are filled with that supernatural power, that supernatural presence. When he overtakes us, and he gives us the ability to stand. We don't have to resist the temptation. We don't have to fight the struggle in our own strength and in our own power because his supernatural power will come and give us the ability to stand. So here's, here's the bottom line. Back to the Israelites in verses seven through nine. They had set their hearts on evil things. And because of that, God basically says, okay, that's your choice. So here you go. You get the consequences. And it still happens that way for us today. We can still make a decision to say, no, this is more attractive to me. And I'm going to pursue this evil. And if we make that decision, God in his sovereignty and in, our, in the freedom he gives us, he'll say, okay, I'm going to let you do that. But you're going to pay the price. It'd be so much better to pursue me and receive the blessing and favor. So here's, here's the deal. Here's the end. Here's the bad news. Temptations will never cease to be. But here's the good news. God's faithfulness will never cease to be. Here's the great news. God's faithfulness is stronger than my temptations. That's good news. So if we'll do our part, set our face and set our feet, rest assured that God will be faithful to do his. Would you bow with me? Thanks for listening. We truly hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org.